Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Have you ever wrestled with God? I mean, really got down and dirty wrestling with God in prayer. I don't mean physically wrestling with him, but spiritually wrestling with God. The Bible is literally filled with men and women who wrestled with God. I I sat down as I was researching for this message, and I just went through in my head people that I know wrestled with God because they didn't at first want what God wanted. And I'm sure you've been in that situation where you've had a a, a position in life where, no, God, this is not what I want. Instead of wanting to pray, Lord, your will be done, we want to pray, Lord, your will be changed. Do you know that the Bible is full of people who are, in essence, praying, praying, Lord, your will be changed? Abraham. First promised a son at the age of 75 and re-promised a son many times. In fact, the promise gets bigger and better as God goes along. He says, Abraham, your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And for years, that promise comes to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah, to the point where they finally kind of get tired of hearing it. And they laugh sarcastically on one of the last times God promises them a son. They kind of give up and they say, God, I don't believe that you are going to truly give me the son that you've promised. God gave Abraham a a chance to wrestle with him once when he, he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God asks himself kind of an amusing question. Should I destroy Sodom and Gomorrah without telling my friend Abraham? And you remember what happens, how, how, uh, how Abraham sort of dickers and, and, uh, and goes back and forth with God in that situation? What if there are only 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Lord, will you destroy it then? What about 40? What about 30? And they're struggling and wrestling back and forth because Abraham's dearly loved nephew Lot is in that city. Or what about Moses? When God appears to him in a burning bush, a burning bush, and says, I want you to lead my people out. Moses' response is, "Uh, I don't think so, God. 
I, I would not have the first clue about how to lead your people out of Egypt. Please don't make me go there. I can't do it. I'm too weak. I can't speak. God, please don't make me lead your people out of Egypt. Or Job. Remember Job? His three friends had all the pious platitudes going on, man. But Job was struggling. He was bitter. He was angry with God. God, why are you punishing me like this? Why are you doing this? I've tried to to live in your ways. I've tried to live a righteous life. I want what you want. I've done everything that you've ever asked. You've blessed me up to now. Why, Lord, are you doing this? Job actually gets so frustrated with God, he nearly abandons prayer entirely and, and throws up his hands and says, I give up, God. Can anyone teach knowledge to God? Job asks in one verse when he's speaking. Can anyone teach knowledge to God? What use is it for me to pray? David, one of his psalms, he almost gives up too. He says, I'm worn out, Lord, calling for your help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you. Where are you, God? Do you ever get down and dirty with God like that? Do you ever fight with God and wrestle with him? Really wrestle with him? I want you to think for a moment, who are the people that you do that kind of stuff with. As for me, I usually don't really get down in in dirty wrestling with people until I really know them, until I really feel comfortable around them, until until I think to myself, you know what? This person probably knows what's going on in my heart anyway. I may as well just bust out and say it because I'm not hiding anything from them and they're not hiding anything from me. I am just going to come out and say what I really mean. I'm going to be true to myself. I'm going to be authentic. I think sometimes it's so easy for us. Maybe you're a new believer and you're going, I'm afraid to really tell God what's on my heart because I don't know how he's going to react. I've never really had an argument with God before. Maybe you're a little bit more mature believer and you're up and down and, and maybe you've had that, that argument with God before. Maybe you're a very mature believer and you're going, I'm past that now. You know, I'm always calm around God. I never get upset with God anymore. How interesting it is that these guys were among the most mature believers. In fact, Abraham, for example, is held up as a very example of faith in the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul. And here he is hammering it out with God. So I want to talk to you this morning about the importance If we're going to build a dynastic faith, a faith that really lasts, a faith that's really strong, to be honest with God, to be authentic with him. Do we think he really doesn't know what's going on inside of our hearts? Do we think that if we stuff our anger with him or stuff our guilt with him or stuff any emotions with him that he's not going to know? He knows. He knows. And so when we talk to God, when we're honest with God, that's exactly what he wants. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is how do you wrestle with God? 
How do you really get down with God and say, this is really what's going on in my mind. And God, I need you to help me with this. I need you to help me with this now. And the very first thing that we notice if we look at this text, take a look at at this uh, Genesis 32 passage again. I want to point something out to you. Jacob does something kind of interesting here. Jacob's got his really close family with him. You notice that? It's got, it says he's got his two wives, his two maidservants, which, by the way, were similar to wives because he was having children with them. And he has his 11 sons. And what does he do with them? Wouldn't you think in a moment of great crisis when you're afraid, what's my brother going to do to me when I meet him? Is he going to meet me with an open heart or with a closed fist with a dagger in it? Don't you think you're going to go, come on, family, let's gather around. We need to pray together. We do that sometimes. And again, it's not wrong. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he try to do, right? His disciples were there. He was struggling with God. He tried to get some of his disciples to come along with them. Of course, they took a nap instead. But Jacob and many others in the Bible, when they're in a period of anxiety, they do exactly what Jacob does. Sends everybody away. And he says, you know what? This is me. This is me and God right now. I need to be alone with my father. And I need to talk to him directly, independently, and just have this be between the two of us. And that's exactly what he does. Take a look. He sent them across the stream and he sent over all his possessions. Verse 24 says, so Jacob was left all alone. You know, today, we've got another tool. And really what we're talking about today is when we've got deep problems, when we've got problems that are just aching right to the very core of our soul, right to the core of our heart, there are times when we need to get some leverage, right? Or if you're stuck on a problem, you, you might feel like you want some traction. I remember when I used to... Um, to get stuck in Zambia sometimes, the roads would be rivers. And we'd have to stick logs underneath the tires to somehow get traction so we could move the truck forward. And sometimes we'd stick logs underneath those tires and you'd move three feet and then you get stuck all over again. You jam more logs under there to somehow get traction on the problem. Some of you today are sitting there, and I've done it before too, and you're saying, I've got a problem and I cannot get traction on my problem. I can't get leverage. You ever been in one of those situations where you got to change a tire, right? And you're just like, I can't, I can't get enough leverage on this baby. But that's exactly what a tool like this is about, isn't it? It's about getting leverage on your problems. It's about getting leverage with God. And that's why we wrestle with God. Because wrestling with God is just like this tire iron. Wrestling with God is what gives us leverage with him. He wants us. He invites us to remind him that he's our father, to remind him that he loves us. He's promised us so many good things. And Jacob, sitting there in the dark, 
he has to be going through in his mind God's goodness. In fact, I want to show you something. Turn back, if you've got your Bible with you this morning, to Genesis 32. And we see, we, we actually have recorded for us words that Jacob prayed before this night. And you have to know that he's probably repeating some of these words in the middle of the night. Jacob said, Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, who are you, God? You are the God of my grandfather. You've been around since him and the God of my father. I know you're here for me. Oh, Lord, who said to me, what's he doing? He's reminding God, didn't you say to me, go back to your country? And now here I am. And Esau's coming at me with 400 men. He goes on, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I'm reading in chapter 32, verse 10, if you're with me. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. And then he reminds God of his promise again. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He's throwing God's promises right back in his face. You know, I love to do that when I pray. I hope you love to do that when you pray. To just say to God, God, didn't you promise me? Didn't you say? And, and when we need to do that is just like I'm saying, when we're all alone with God and it's just me and God, it's just you and God, God, let's go back to your promises. Because God's promises are the, uh, is that tire iron. It's those logs that you jam when you're stuck. You go back and you say, God, let me remind you what you've said to me. And time after time in the, in the Bible, we find people doing that god's people doing that with god so it's so important first of all that we get one-on-one with god when we want to wrestle with him and then remind him of his of his promises take a look at what jesus did matthew 14 i put this in your crosswalk notes immediately jesus made the disciples get into the boat And go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, circle that word. He got rid of them is really what that's saying. He dismissed the crowd. He sent them away. He went up on a mountainside by himself. Circle that. To pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Circle that. Not too long ago, I was outside. Someone had a flat tire after second service. I asked if I could help. The guy was already using the tire iron. And he said to me, you know what? There's not a whole lot for you to do right now. Using the tire iron is kind of a one-man job. He's right, isn't he? I suppose occasionally if you get it in the right spot, you can get two sets of hands on here. But man, when you're changing a tire with the tire iron, it's, it's kind of a one-man job. And that's the way it is when we're wrestling with God. 
Sometimes we just got to get everybody else away. We got to get all alone by ourselves. It's me, it's God, and it's God's promises. God, remember what you said to me. Remember how you told me you love me. Remember how you told me you'd bless me. And when we do that, it's amazing the kind of traction, the kind of leverage that we can get on our problems. So there's our first point for this morning. First of all, if we're going to wrestle with God, let's get comfortable wrestling with God individually. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong to ask other people to pray with you or pray for you. But there are times in our walk with Christ where we just have to feel comfortable wrestling with God individually. Go back to that example of Jesus, right? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Did he want his friends to come along and pray with him? Yes, of course he did. But when they didn't come, when they fell asleep and took a nap, did Jesus throw up his hands and go, no, I can't pray now. There's nothing left for me to do. I guess I'll just sit here. No, he went on and he struggled with God by himself. And here's the other thing that we need to always remember when we're feeling lonely and like it's just us struggling with God. We're never truly alone, are we? Because every time we're there praying to God, the Bible tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We have an advocate with God the Father who is right there with us every time we pray. We're never truly alone, alone. Because we have Jesus praying alongside of us. Let's go on to the next point. The God who watches over you, the Bible tells us, shall neither, can anyone finish that? The God who watches over you shall neither slumber nor sleep. Yet do we sometimes pray as if God is slumbering and sleeping? Or maybe even just as bad, do we sometimes pray as if we're slumbering and sleeping? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Hold on here just a second. God, got to tie my shoe. Where was I? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Na, 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 na. What did I just say? Can't remember? Maybe because I'm really not passionate about what I'm doing. Maybe because I don't know if I'm really ready to get down and dirty and wrestle with God with all my heart. Jacob is there in the middle of the night. He wakes up. He sends everybody across this ford in the stream in the middle of the night. A somewhat risky thing to do. And then he goes back across the ford of the stream so he can be in solitude. And he starts praying. And like I told you before, Hosea tells us he starts crying. Because he's wrestling with God in his heart. And then here comes this man who later turns out to be 
God himself. And it says in Genesis 32, they wrestle the whole rest of the night. Until the sun starts coming up. And this man who's God says, Jacob, you got to let me go, buddy. We've been wrestling all night long. You got to let me go. And then he touches his hip and, and puts his whole hip out of joint. And still, Jacob, remember what he does? Still, Jacob clings. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go. God finally says, what's your name? My name's Jacob. You know what Jacob means? Heel grabber. That's a perfect characterization of how Jacob has always gotten ahead in life to this point. By grabbing someone's heel and tripping them up. He always stepped on someone else to get where he wanted in his ambition. He didn't care. He grabbed their heel. Right from the very beginning. Grabbed Esau's heel. As the two of them were in the womb. Laban. All throughout his life. He's lived by deception. And now God says, in the form of this wrestling man, God looks at him and says, I'm not going to call you Jacob anymore. You've got a new name. Your new name is Israel. And Israel means he struggles with God. Amazing new name. You are the guy who is not afraid to wrestle with God. And you think about that. That name not only becomes Jacob's name, but who else's name does it become? It becomes the name of all of God's Old Testament followers, his people. It characterizes a whole nation of followers that these are people who are not afraid to contend with God, to wrestle with God, to fight with him. In fact, it's God saying, this is an admirable trait when you wrestle with me. And I want you to wrestle with me with passion. I want you to wrestle with me insistently and never give up. Take a look at the passage that I put from Jesus' own words. Luke 18.1 Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And actually the story there in in Luke 18 is kind of an interesting one. It's a story about a widow who comes up and she can't get justice because this judge that she's in front of is corrupt. And, And he sits and he won't even... Listen to this lady, but she keeps raising her hand and saying, Judge, I need to get justice from you. Judge, I need to get justice from you. And finally, this unjust judge gets tired of hearing her call out to him. And he says, Okay, you can have what you want. And Jesus makes this point. He says, If even an unjust judge, a judge who cares nothing about a good honest outcome will finally listen to a widow because she prays insistently. What about your good, loving, heavenly father when you pray to him insistently? Won't he listen to you? 
You see, that's another characteristic of wrestling with God. Is just like Jacob, we keep praying and we don't give up. We don't give up even if we don't see the results that we're hoping for. We just keep clinging. We're persistent and insistent and persevering. Think about all the Christian prayers over the centuries that have gone by without necessarily being answered right away. I'm sure you can think of examples. What about all the people in World War II, Christians, who were praying that the war would end? And that their sons and daughters and cousins and fathers could come home. And year after year after year, the war raged on in Europe and in the Far East. What about the Christians who are praying for the war in Iraq right now? What about the addicts that every day get up and say, Lord, please deliver me from this temptation today. I don't want to be hooked on this drug anymore. Take, take it away. What about the person stuck in a horrible financial situation in our situation today? And every day they get up and they go, Lord, I need you to help me figure out my mortgage because I don't know how I'm going to make the payment this, this month. Or the employer who says, I've got all these employees that they, they need to feed their families, God. And every day they're praying and praying and praying. And God's silent yet. You see why God says, pray insistently? Because he doesn't always give us the answer right away. Not the answer that we're seeking for. Because sometimes what he's teaching us is to keep on praying to strengthen your faith. When we pray, we're driven back into God's word to, to be reminded of those promises. When our, when our prayers seem to meet an angry face of God or a silent face of God that drives us back again to God's word so that not only can we remind God of his promises, but we ourselves in our own hearts can be reminded of God's love in his promises. Philip Yancey writes in his book, Prayer. This is kind of an interesting book. I'll show it to you. You might want to look this up. It's a pretty good book on prayer. He writes this little story. I will always remember an alcoholic friend who expressed to me his frustration at praying daily for God to remove his desire for drink, only to find each morning his thoughts turning back to Jack Daniel's whiskey. Was God even listening? He asked himself. And later on, it dawned on him that the desire for alcohol was the main reason he prayed so diligently. Persistent temptation had compelled persistent prayer. Why does Jacob pray? Does Jacob even wrestle with God all night long if he's not afraid? If he's not scared out of his wits? What compelled him to wrestle all night with God? Well, the next day he was going to be meeting his brother Esau, right? And so often we pray that a thing go, go away quickly. 
when in effect it's that very thing driving us to God in prayer, driving us back into the scriptures to search God's word for his promises of love. So here's, here's our second point. Wrestle with God insistently. And here's the final point. Do you notice that Jacob, when he wrestles with God, has something in mind? He's not just wrestling with God, kind of saying, God, whatever you want to give me, is he? He's wrestling with God and he's saying, I won't let you go unless what? How how does he finish that? Unless you bless me. Jacob knew exactly what he was praying for. He was praying with a clear intent in his mind, with a goal. He knew what it was he was wanted. Even as he was praying insistently and individually, he was always praying intently on that goal. I won't let you go, God, unless you bless me. How about us when we pray? Again, I think that's the source of a lot of pious platitudes. Lord, whatever you want to do for me, that's okay. I'll be okay with that. But deep down in our hearts, if we're really, truly honest with ourselves, we know what it is we need. And again, God knows. He can look down into the very deepest parts of your heart. So why not just get it out on the table with him? That's what all those people in the Bible did. Paul wasn't afraid to pray for specific things. He doesn't tell us what it is, but he prayed that, that uh, a thorn in the flesh would be removed. And he kept coming back insistently to God, God, take this away from me. Jesus prayed specifically, didn't he, in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, take this cup from me. I know the plan has me suffering, but I'm not sure, really, if I can drink that cup right here and now in this garden. Can you take this cup away from me? God ended up answering no to that request, we know. And that was our salvation. But Jesus prayed intently. And how about you? You know, we've got some great examples in the Bible of people that prayed intently. Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In everything, whatever you're anxious about, whatever your heart is hurting about, Paul says, pray about that thing. And don't be anxious about it anymore. In reality, an anxiety, a worry is just a prayer waiting to happen. Take that thing to God, whatever it is specifically you're worrying about. In the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Chronicles, we read about a man named Jabez who prayed intently. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Isn't it interesting 
that all these people of God were willing to get down with God and not not worry about hurting God's feelings, not worry about what this was going to do. They just kept wrestling with God, and they did not give up. Philip Yancey in that book, Prayer, tells a great story to illustrate this point. He says that when, when he and his wife were just first married, they were offered a trip to Colorado to stay in a, in a bed and breakfast, and they were the only ones in it. It was this big bed and breakfast house, and it had four bedrooms in it. That night, they had some friends over for dinner, and while these friends were over for dinner, he and his wife and the, this new young marriage got into a fight. You've probably been there if you've been married. The guests left, and there they were all alone in this big house with four bedrooms, Right? And Philip Yancey's wife knew exactly what she wanted from Philip. And so even though he tried to go to sleep, she just kept intently, intently hammering at this point that they had gotten into an argument over at supper time. Finally, Philip says, I've got, you know, I've got to get some sleep tonight. And he moves to another bedroom. He goes, I'm going over to this other bedroom to sleep. And he's there for five minutes just about on the edge of sleep, and boom, the door opens. In comes his wife. And she starts hammering again. You know, we're not going to bed until we have this solved. And she is intent on getting what she wants. Literally, Philip says, she chased him around through all four bedrooms as he tried to escape her, but she was intent on her goal. And he says, that's the way it is when we pray with God or or the way it should be when we wrestle with God. If we want to get traction on our problems, if we want to get leverage with God, we have to follow God around and keep asking intently for what it is that we want. And then, of course, in the end, just as Jesus says, we have to be content with the answer God gives In this story, Jacob receives exactly what he prayed for. Lord, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God does bless him and blesses his descendants after him. So here's what I really want you to go home with today. If you're going to build a dynastic faith, remember you're going to sometimes have to get alone with God and wrestle with him and be truly authentic and honest in your prayers. Pray individually, all by yourself. Pray insistently, not giving up. And pray intently, knowing exactly what it is you're asking for. We're building a dynasty faith. Let me run you through it as we wind up for today. A dynasty faith starts with humility. And when we build... We get on a ladder that goes down, not up, right? We're humble enough to admit our sins and our wrongs and to confess them. A dynasty faith looks for the unseen behind the scene, right? The stud finder, remember? And you hang your life on what cannot be seen, as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Find the stud, Jesus, the solid rock, and hang your life on him.
Last week, we were reminded that faith has to be flexible and responsive to God's will. You may think you're going one way and God says, no, no, I need you to go over here. Faith like this wrench has to be able to adjust and follow God's will wherever it leads. And finally today, we learn this. A dynasty faith is one that's willing to to wrestle with God in our problems and heartaches. Because when we wrestle with God, we get leverage. We get leverage on our problems, and we get leverage with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you teach us about how to build a dynasty-like faith. Lord, that is exactly what we want, a faith that's focused on your son, Jesus Christ, for his forgiveness and love, and a faith with deep roots that can't get blown over by any storm. As we look at Jacob today, Lord, give us the kind of faith that he had, a faith that's willing to wrestle with you, to really get down and dirty with you in those times when we don't know what we should do. We can come to you and be truly honest and authentic with you. And you can deal with our honesty and our authenticity. Help us to know that, Lord. Lord, bless every person in this room with a strong, deeply rooted faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.